What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast that has a soft spot for raising standards. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and in each episode, I'm joined by directors, CEOs, CFOs, government ministers, chairmen, and chairwomen. The aim is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make Britain work. We discuss the innovation that leads to success in this country, and we also get their take on the current political and economic state of the nation. Today, we're joined by Alistair Kerr, founder and director of Acre Properties. Alistair founded Acre Properties in 1988, but the business really took off in the mid-1990s when buy-to-let products started to appear. Originally, Kerr and his team started by acquiring studio and one-bedroom flats, but then they gradually moved on towards larger flats, both ex-council and private mansion blocks in West London. By 2009, Acre Properties diversified into houses and property rental companies. Alistair elaborates on their journey and tells the podcast why his firm believes it's important to treat all tenants as if they're brothers and sisters. Alistair, welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Nice to speak to you. Yes, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, Of course, uh, it's a very different uh, set of circumstances we find ourselves under uh, than uh, before when we were first uh, discussing having you on the on the show. But we're pushed through anyway. Um, So. So it's been uh, several months since Ace Property uh, was featured in an article in the Parliamentary Review. What has happened in the ensuing months to the firm? Well, uh, well, I think uh, everyone uses the term unprecedented, don't they? They, We're living in unprecedented times where everything you thought about life has been turned on its head and uh, certainly business life has been vastly transformed. If one had said at the start of this year that you you could see a time when shops would be closed, there wouldn't be any restaurants, hotels, actually football wouldn't be the national pastime and actually we'd scrap it. Yet someone would have said, you're completely off your head. But the reality is with this pandemic, everything we knew has had to change and quite understandably so. So presently, I'm talking to you, Matthew, from... um, my office, I still have to provide certain functions and uh, all my colleagues are doing tremendously well working from remote. So mm. uh, basically, I've got an empty office except for me as company, which is probably not the best company in the world, but hey-ho, that, you know, life must go, go on. And uh, my colleagues are now dispersed uh, all around London and uh, one in St. Albans and Hertfordshire, but we're all committing to doing our best to make sure that the uh, wheels stay on the enterprise. Now, of course, uh, we're going to talk a bit more in depth about the COVID-19 situation a bit later on uh, in this interview. Uh, but before we uh, mire ourselves down in the uh, the uh, slightly um, stressful situation that we find ourselves all under at the moment, sure. I'd like to talk to you a bit more uh, about Acre Properties. Um, Alistair, a lot has happened in the 32 years uh, since you founded Acre Properties. What has changed sure. in the market? Uh, but also, what has stayed the same? Okay. Well, uh, what has changed is the way that we communicate with people. I think that's the biggest transformation. Obviously, there's been a technological revolution. If I was just to put out adverts uh, in, a, in a shop window, which in a way we could, we'd have no market at all. So mm. the internet changed the world. That that's, that's radically changed it. And uh, so communication is the biggest thing. The thing that hasn't changed is the need. And it's it's been since caveman's days. People need shelter. Mm. People need a home. And we are trying to provide, we believe, uh, competitively priced accommodation, whether it's uh, for an individual or a group of individuals. But it's at a competitive price for what it is. Uh, Laterally, in the last six, seven years, we had no choice, actually, that can go into a different discussion, but we had to change the format of the business to helping professional shares, and it's actually been an area which we've been very successful on. We integrate all the bills into the the rent, and that's been a very successful uh, thing for us because there's many, many people who wish to come to London, which is seen pretty much by universally as the favorite city in the world, and we're trying to do our best to ensure that people can have a fair share of it. 
Now, of course, uh, that's a rather interesting um, uh, development. Uh, this idea of professionals uh, sharing accommodation—it's—it's uh, mm-hmm. a, it's a rather new uh, concept. Uh, how long has this been going on, uh, and what does it say about us as a society that we now have professional individuals uh, living with roommates effectively? Well, I can understand that. But to put it in context, I I came down to London just over 40 years ago. Uh, I was very, very fortunate because within about six months, uh, I had a deposit, thankfully due to my parents, and I could buy a flat. But if we come forward the 40 years, um, I would have now to, probably with a mortgage, I think the same type of job when I started in a bank, would have meant that I'd be short of about £500,000 or beyond the mortgage to acquire the same property. So things have moved on tremendously. So it's very, very difficult for anyone to afford a place in early years. When you're starting out, you're getting your first job, your second job, and you need some sort of assistance. So where can you go? Can you afford a one-bedroom flat or a studio? Probably not. It's you know This may be costing you a thousand pounds, give or take. So if we can provide accommodation, such as a four-bedroom flat or a house, which we we try and make a very nice lounge and or living room, ideally, and there's often the garden, which we try and make uh, functional for both day and night. We'll put lighting out there so people in different times when the climate's right can be better. So it gives people a chance for affordability. They then just pay one amount which covers, as I say, their council tax, their Wi-Fi, their TV, et cetera, et cetera. And so all they have to do really is think how much it's going to cost them transport to the place of work and back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's them getting started. And we have a, a lot of people, difficult to say, I, I, I'm giving them an approximation, but probably about 60 to 70% of our tenants uh, refer other people to us. Uh, off the back of their experience, which is very good. And there's there's certainly one person I know that's on to the third place with us that moved into different uh, areas. So the concept obviously appeals. Now, of course, uh, you have a, a rather tight-knit team that has enabled you to acquire a Trustpilot uh, score of 9.9 out of 10. How do you motivate them to keep, achieve such uh, high standards of success? Uh, fortunately, I don't have to resort to any violence. Uh, it's just purely, <laughs> if you have, <laughs> well, not yet. Um, no, I think the thing is, you start off with an idea and you wish that idea to, to take shape. You can't do it solely on your own. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopefully seen as a leader. So I come out with ideas. I don't like to think I come out with good ideas, but I welcome ideas from all, all, all parties. And so it's collaborative. So I, I I've been lucky. Circumstances have evolved. That, for example, I've got several people that I met in different walks of life. One was a building society manager, uh, and unfortunately, she was going to be laid off, which was an absolute godsend to me because she's my PR uh, uh, PA. She's fantastic. Another is the operations manager. Known her when I was in banking. She came and joined me and stayed ever since. So it's seeing the qualities of people. Ideally, giving them uh, a tryout. So, it's, does it fit for you? Does it work for you? Yeah. Uh, work for us? And we we do it collaboratively. And then, if people like it, we say, "All right, all right good. I want you to go away for just say for a week, maybe ten days. Think over what you've seen. You may think, blast, I wish I'd asked Alistair this sort of thing.' So they come back, have another day, and by the end of it, I'll have spoken in the morning. Certainly, at the end of the day, to 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 feel is the same um, circumstances and the motivation on both sides the same. And if it is, then we continue. And that, that stood us in really good stead. I've got a tremendous uh, bunch of people who, who've got uh, great skills and they, they come in. I think that's what they want to do. No one wants to do a bad job. We're not infallible, but we try. If we make a mistake, we'll, we'll, we'll really try and front up, make a, a, a difference to it. But we, we do have really genuine people. They're honestly really nice people. I'm proud to, to have them as colleagues and, I guess, friends as well. Now, of course, you've mentioned uh, in the past uh, that you have a rather unusual recruitment method. Uh, would you mind uh, elaborating on that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Well, historically, uh, I started off and uh, I remember the, the gentleman who was uh, 
supplying the beds and the furniture initially. I said, oh, my goodness, Rob, uh, gentleman still works with us. And I said, we really need to have a bookkeeper. I'm I'm getting waylaid with all the paperwork. He said, well, my my partner uh, has been doing an NVQ, a national vocational course in office management. So it started off, I I met her with her best friend, and uh, they were an absolute hoot. I thought, you know what? I like these ladies. They're so good. And... uh, they're so on for doing this part time that I took them on and on that sort of basis, and that was uh, a blessing, and uh, that worked very well. So, really, when I uh, meet someone, I try and establish one: is there a likely fit for this 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 company? Why is the third person that's going to add mm. something? So, often people's personalities are intriguing. Everyone's different. Everyone's unique. But sometimes you think, oh, Mister, this person's quirky but in a nice way I think this this might add not subtract to the the enterprise so we try them out and then as I say this system is we meet you you come in experience us it may not it may not be for you but isn't that great because it saves you a lot of time you may have thought Matthew it's not really for me but I'm not going to think any the worse of you nor you worse of me at least we've been honest with each other and we've saved each other an awful lot of time it's the basis of work experience isn't it giving a person a chance to see what work is about and the, a, a good experience can actually be a bad experience because you decide actually that's not the route I'm going down I could have done a three year four year degree course to go into something that I found out that I didn't like so that's really how I do it it's, uh, that's what we've done in the past life is getting different I've got to be honest Matthew uh, the, the way you recruit people is harder we were doing a lot by referral from colleagues and uh, that was fine but uh, we found out that um, we had a couple of changes that were brought on and we had to go outside but again we we wanted to test things out and be very careful about our selection and so far we've been pretty much rewarded by that. Well, it sounds like a fantastic uh, way of, uh, of doing this and a much more personal uh, way of recruiting people, uh, whereas we're living in a world where so many CVs are now uh, scanned by uh, automated uh, programs uh, in, in computers. Uh, having such a human approach is, uh, is, is a rather uh, nice uh, change. Um, now, of course, our whole society has seen a, a huge shift in our daily lives over the past few weeks during, due to uh, COVID-19. Uh, we touched on it a bit earlier, uh, but how uh, has this affected uh, your business aside from uh, your staff working from home? And how are you adapting uh, to meet this challenge? Yeah, no, that's a fair comment. Um, unprecedented times. We did something um, which probably worked out uh, to our advantage. There's um, a British Standards Institute, and they have uh, a certification for uh, offices, enterprises. It's called an ISO 9001. It's called, um, this is for service quality. And I thought, you know, it's very nice. Self-congratulatory stuff is all good, but it doesn't count for anything in my view. But I thought, wouldn't it be good if we had uh, an independent assessment? So I said to the office manager, I think we should try and go for this. I think it's good for morale and also for self-worth if we were to, to do this, see see ourselves as hopefully a really good standard. And the good thing about it was, Matthew, that it enabled us to look at each job, mm. the task within the job, and write them up and then add in or subtract out. And so we were able to get uh, a very good hold on the jobs. Uh, and that made a big, big difference. We, we subsequently got the award and uh, we kept having, there were three different people that came in, the last person. I said, well, you, you seem to be very, uh, very positive about our company. I mean, generally, uh, how's, uh, how have we done relative to others? And it turned out... <laughs> We were in the top 15 out of the 1900 that had ever got it. So I was—I uh, have to say, I take very little responsibility for it. I was largely out of this. I, I was the only one that initiated it, but that's how good my colleagues have been and uh, dedicating themselves to the task. So I think it allowed us to be better prepared for an emergency because there was a contingency, you know, catastrophe option. What would you do if this happened? What did, would you do with that? And we, we had a couple of minor occasions where I have to think of that. But we had uh, two of our colleagues who were already able to work from remote. 
uh, where we're actually logging into the system and onto the market rooms that were coming available. We could upload pictures and images, and also we can do 360-degree tours, so someone in Australia could book a room if they wish to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd prefer to show it, and we have an outside lighting team who are terrific people and very personal. The, the key thing is do not tell anyone anything you don't genuinely believe in. Just tell them the truth. If you don't know the answer, tell them the answer once you do know. Mm. So we've got very decent principles. And so what's happened now, Matt, is that everyone dispersed, but we actually trialed out everyone a day uh, each. So no one was going to be in the deep end without having tried this. Would it work? And then collectively we decided, right, here we go. Let's go in. And we've got a WhatsApp application where it's all integrated. Uh, everyone signs in in the morning. There's a lots of nice hellos, good mornings. And uh, there's some very good icons and the occasional little um, you know, video clip, which is humor. So there's a banter aspect, but it's a good human uh, involvement, a human dynamic. We, yes, we, human we, interaction. The, so, so important. Consideration between people. We, we're we're collected but we are doing surprisingly well I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say that i was i think I underestimated uh, how good everyone would be at this and they really are yeah, coming up trumps now of course there are some uh, aspects of this situation that you are unable to control or plan for uh, the government yeah. has instituted effectively a ban on moving house at the moment how are you yeah. coping with this uh, and with the resulting yeah. effects all of this decision not only on your industry, but also on your tenants? Yeah, yeah. well, the, the good thing is the, the government has put directives out, but in a way we've been ahead of them in certain things. We've said, look, the, the basic thing is if someone was going to, going to be laid off, there's not a lot we can do, but we can, first of all, be sympathetic. First of all, we're sorry to hear this. Now, if we can help, that's what we'll try and do. But please ideally show us that this, this is the case it's with some documentation to prove because some people are very substantially well off whether by deposits or family involvement etc so we're really saying we're trusting you to tell us the information is correct so that if we are going to assist then we can do it from a sensible perspective so we are uh, we are fielding calls and we're trying to be sent, uh, sympathetic and, uh, and be of assistance there's also that part in the government legislation or the guidance notes we should say um, which says that lenders have also got to help because if you think about it you start with the individual the individual he or she loses their job that's catastrophic and there's about a million people that within the space of a month they were on the receiving end of people that work in shops restaurants pubs whatever they they've been told sorry don't come back in so that will obviously affect the UK um, uh, industries and uh, the people that are especially lending to them. So I'm a landlord. They may have difficulties paying the rent. That obviously would affect back into the lender that helps uh, Acre uh, continue. But we've been assured uh, by, well, not only by a broker, but a couple of uh, banks that they will help. We're not having to resort to that just yet, but I suspect we will have to have a collaborative approach with them uh, at some stage. Because I think Mm. we're quite with each lender and we've got uh, an excellent track record we wish that to continue but if it's a question of deferring the position for three four months then hopefully everyone benefits from that and we all survive it just means okay we'll have a bit of a break but we'll get there in the long run and i think that's the best ploy for all businesses just now make sure that uh, people can survive first i'd rather a tenant being able to pay for his or her food and strangely enough, paying for the rent, which is more important, mm. life or where you live, and make sure you live first. But if we do this deferment, then I think uh, everyone wins. Now, um, do you believe that COVID-19 is going to have a long-term effect on the property sector? Well, an interesting one, Matthew. You probably, in the article, it's curious, I've come up with certain things. One or two people said, you've come up with one or two eerie things, Alistair, in your document in September. You talk about first-time um, first-time purchasers, and you mention a system that you write the article in February, gets produced in September, and then in November, 
the government are talking about the same product that you're talking about. You talk about need to assist key workers. Mm. Can you see the need to assist key workers just now? Do we have to think about National Health Service? Do we think of all these fine people who are getting the food right through the, the, the whole process into shops? Key workers, that's what I mentioned. I mentioned also clearly in the document that people are one paycheck away from homelessness. Last month, we had one million people that technically, under those criteria, would be homeless. Fortunately, you're living in a society, or they're living in a very caring society called Britain, but it's got the word great in front of it. I think it will help people greatly. But the, the other thing I mentioned in it, this is curious. I said, the National Health Service, You wouldn't, a person would be a little bit off the... Uh, off the beaten track if they suggest we need less beds in the NHS. I'll point out to you that there's a, a staggering need for NHS beds. But why I said that is that sadly the government took a view that they wanted less homes to be provided into the market when the population will be expanding. And by 2027, we may have an extra three and a half billion people. That's 3.5 with zeros behind it, um, million people in the economy. And they said, well, actually, we don't want uh, places being provided. Well, I would say a roof over one's head is pretty essential now. Think of the complications, the mental health issues that could evolve, the overcrowding, transmission of a, a contagious disease. So I'm thinking that really one thing that would help, Matthew, and hopefully the people that are listening, would say, as soon as you mention the word landlord, there's a Dickensian feel to it. Sure, there's good, bad, and indifferent in all walks of life. Have no doubt. But let's get rid of the bad landlords, people that are really treating people disrespectfully. But we definitely need, with our backs to the wall, at this stage, as many options in life and for the future as we can possibly get. I would say, respectfully to people, this rule should be put to the side for now because in national interests, we need to help people, we need to give accommodation, and we need to keep people having dreams that they can be realistic and keep them alive. People will aspire to having their own places. If they can't at this stage have it, then give them a place which is hopefully affordable and is available to people. So that, that's one of the things I would say. Um, so the COVID uh, virus will change people's understanding of what freedom is and how jobs and life will be for the, the years ahead. Everyone will have a different viewpoint. Now, of course, uh, that dovetails in quite nicely uh, to what you said in your uh, piece in the document about Acre Properties having a desire to help the homeless community. What steps uh, are you taking to do this? Well, we, we do a variety of things. You've probably seen that we uh, do very chari various charitable things. We try... Um, helping and sponsor the uh, bursaries for the Performing Arts College, which we have a quite a close affinity to because several of the people that work within the business have had that background training. It sounds strange to want to come into property and you've been an actor or an actress, but they're very good at presenting. So we use very good people to help both inside and outside marketers. Um, but as far as trying to help people, we talked about key workers. I wanted to set aside certain rooms for people and subsidized rents. Uh, I went to the local fire station and had uh, three long conversations, and yet they still couldn't supply people that we would gladly uh, assist. Also, there was uh, a hospital I approached as well uh, to try and help those. Um, initially, wasn't successful. It got uh, derailed, so I haven't been able to do so as yet. And yet, I've had a phone call yesterday about certain students vacating a property very near to one of uh, the West London hospitals and we're considering taking on nurses for a period of time mm. for, for reasons. So we're, we're happy to help. And actually, here's an idea. It may be a bit radical, but I don't think it's radical in the sense of, you know, where we are now, we can see as a nation there's 750,000 people have flocked to help the NHS. My goodness, one loved the organization. And they are in the front line. They're our army, our Air Force, uh, the Navy front line and trying to help. And I think we should be maybe thinking in terms of often these people, uh, in all ranges of that enterprise are not paid a gigantic amount. Why can't it be that if someone is providing 
home home dwellings, like a landlord in this case, that maybe a tax deduction is helped or given to incentivize people to help such people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an idea, but I certainly feel it's that certainly an interesting be- idea. Um, now, uh, we're starting to uh, draw down on our time together, but I just want to touch on one more point with you. Um, and although it seems like a distant memory at this point, uh, the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union uh, was the only thing we seemed to discuss for the better part of the last three years. Uh, how will Brexit um, affect your business? Well, it's a good thought. I mean, we had a lot of people. We we generally have around 50 to 60% of the people that we uh, have been accommodating have been EEC citizens. So it's a high percentage. But we didn't see a dramatic change in the composition of those people that were coming to us. So I would like to think, perhaps somewhat naively, that maybe there's a question of fingers crossed and, uh, you know, hope for the best. But I would like to think that we will still attract really good quality people. What country in the world would honestly wish to say, if you're talented, please do not come to our country? I mean, we have to be open for business. We have to be, as the the word in front of Britain says, great. Let's give great possibilities. Let's allow people who, you know, say, I think I'm fit for the job that's being offered, and I would like to come to Britain, wherever it is, if it's in London, welcome to the, the world's favorite city. Come in, play your part. And if people have already been here, paid their taxes, then I think they, they, they've, they've played their part. They should be allowed to be seen as valuable people in, in the UK community. So, as I say, I would like to keep fingers crossed that uh, the politicians will recognize that we have got a, one hell of a talented entity called Great Britain. Let's keep it that way, and if need be, and hopefully will be, that we'll add further talent to it from wherever it shall come from. Well, Alistair, uh, it's been a, a pleasure uh, talking with you today, and uh, we have to have you back on the program at some point uh, when things have uh, calmed down a bit uh, out there. Uh, but uh, like I said, Alistair, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed our chat with Alistair Kerr, and especially learning more about the challenges facing the sector and how the whole team at Acre Properties are continuing to raise standards. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles served as Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government in David Cameron's cabinet before receiving a peerage in 2018. Lord Pickles remains active as the United Kingdom's anti-corruption champion and the country's special envoy for post-Holocaust issues. And of course, he's a keen vexologist. That's flags to you and I. And here it is now. Lord Pickles, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, Now, I'm sure you won't uh, mind me reminding the listeners that uh, you've been involved in politics, both local and national, for quite a number of decades. Indeed, before we the days we were in the common market, um, you know, given your experience over those years, um, what thoughts have you had over the last few weeks and months about the current political uh, situation the country finds itself in? Situation is quite dire because we have um, a parliament that um, is by and large useless. It's like a bored teenager on a long drive and um, it wants, it knows what it doesn't want and it's so bored with Brexit but it can't agree so no matter what you put up, it's against it are you in favour of a referendum? No, I don't want that are you in favour of uh, remaining within the single market? No, I don't want that are you in favour of, no I don't want to do that, no, no and are you in favour of leaving without a deal? No, we don't want to do that so it's against everything but it, there isn't enough votes to be in favour of something. And it could be by the time this, this podcast goes out that, that uh, Boris has, has started on the process of the bill because we'll be voting on that today. Uh, but even then, it, what people don't seem to understand, this is not the end of Brexit. Right. This is barely opening the door of Brexit We've got years of negotiations about about trade agreements, relationships with uh, with Europe. 
cutting, uh, putting down pieces of legislation. We get our agriculture, our fisheries, our financial service into place. Brexit is going to go on and on and on and on. I'm, and sure, on and on. I'm sure we are. Um, now, uh, the question is, I should actually remind listeners that we are talking on the day that the second reading of the European uh, Act uh, will uh, take place. So as we speak, we don't quite know. As well, perhaps like the government front bench don't know what's going to happen. Um, you compare Parliament to a petulant teenager. What do you do to a petulant teenager to sort it out? Um, is there a chance that it will see sense and push this through this bill without breaking amendments? Is there a chance it will vote for its own uh, for a general election? What do you, how do you see this playing out at the moment? The sensible thing will be to put this deal through because I've always been of the view a deal is better than no deal because this is just the beginning. In order to start the process of Brexit, start the process of uh, the United Kingdom taking over powers that it's, uh, it's not really exercised for 40 odd years, the smart thing is to get this thing through now. But in a way it's not about Brexit itself. If there was a free vote, this deal would have gone through. Mrs May's deal would have gone through. But it's about politics. It's about a Labour Party that thinks it has a chance uh, trying to make the Prime Minister, whether it was Theresa May or Boris Johnson, uh, look as though that they are uh, in office but not in power, of um, delaying as long as possible. There's a lot of talk about um, an election uh, in the autumn, maybe back end of November, beginning of uh, of December, uh, something for us to look forward to before Christmas. It's beginning to look less likely. It's beginning to look as though they might want to drag it into spring to get as far away as possible um, from the rather decisive moment that uh, Boris came back with a deal. We have to remind ourselves that nobody thought he could deliver um, a deal and it does quite shock them and I remember all this process went through in order to ensure that we we're left without a deal when we have a deal suddenly well no it's not that kind of deal we don't want that kind of deal we want something different I think the vast majority of people in this country whether remain or leave uh, now would be very satisfied for this to come to a able um, conclusion and as correctly just said, uh, because when it does come to those on, in the opposition who claim to want this to happen, and then to, uh, uh, introduce writing amendments, they introduce uh, new objections to it, the general public are getting quite frustrated. But you've got to understand that quite a lot of people don't get beyond a small area within Westminster, sometimes cliche referred to as the Westminster bubble and go back to their own patch. Now, by and large, everybody hates their MP, except when they're at home, doing the fairs, doing, you know, uh, wandering around, uh, helping people. So they, in a way, they're cosseted to that great, which I feel is coming in a tsunami of change. I do, uh, of course, MP for Brentwood for... Uh, uh, 25 for, years. Absolutely. Um, what would you, I mean, of course, you resident there as well, despite being a proud auction, obviously, representing a good Essex seat. What would you say to your, your old constituents right now? To hang in there, it'll be all right? Well, um, uh, you're, well, it's different when you're a member of parliament because, you know, you've got to kind of toe the government line a little bit. So one thing i found now is I've got my weekend back and I say what I want. And uh, I think I always say to um, our constituents is that it is pretty hopeless down there. Thanks, Mark. On that, I think, uh, honest assessment, it's something I think the Parliamentary Review has always done quite well, talking frankly about problems, issues, and also not just good practice, but leadership. Well, I always used to, I mean, I always used to read it when I was um, a member of Parliament. Um, because, I mean, what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found... Uh, it quite a, um, uh, a kind of a chatty magazine, but also you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. I certainly have 
attended um, the receptions over the year, and it's amazing the things you kind of pick up. And I think it's important to stress it's not because uh, uh, politicians are, are, are uninterested, because honestly, as you will know more than anyone, it's an issue of time. And to be able to have a channel uh, and a platform where you can keep communication lines between businesses, schools, and policy makers is so exceptionally important. No, I think so, and, you know, and it's important that it's beholding to nobody. People, um, uh, you know, pay for to be part of the publication, pay for to be uh, um, uh, members, and it's a way of not beholding to government, not beholding to anything. Uh, no, uh, echoing the words, of course, your fellow uh, chairman, uh, Lord Blunkett, has said. Uh, so, what some might not know uh, is that you started your political journey, perhaps even further left than David Blunkett. Absolutely, I was a communist. Now, uh, what, what, uh, what was it? At the age of 14, I got, uh, I was bought um, the um, <clears throat> Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, and I read it from cover to cover. I tried to read it a few years back, and I just couldn't follow anything. Oh, so I was going to say, perhaps you might know the minds of the uh, show front bench Better than, better than they do themselves. From my position when I first joined, I would regard them as recalcitrant uh, <laughs> running dogs of the capitalist system. Now, what was it that, that uh, moved you from radical Marxist to running uh, the only uh, inner city council controlled by the Conservatives in the 80s? Well, I was very young and um, I was fascinated by what was happening in, um, uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia and uh, Dubček and the, the revolution that was taking place there inside communism and the way in which uh, he was uh, repressed by, uh, by, uh, uh, by Mr. Brezhnev yeah, and the tanks and taking over. I was so angry. And I'm 16, remember. Mm. I'm really angry. I thought, what's the most outrageous thing I can do? Um, I will join the... Um, I'll join the Conservative Party as a protest. And I kind of sticked around, and my family thought it was the funniest thing that ever happened uh, to us. I was Eric the Tory. And, um, well, I think you announced this quite grandly as a, as, a, as a grand protest. I did indeed, but um, do you know, I kept going down, and um, it, was a, it was an exciting time. Um, People developing the ideas of what the Conservative Party should be. Selsden man, even Heath looked radical. We had different ideas, and just it eventually clicked. And at some point, I became a Conservative, and that was 51 years ago. I think I'm definitely 100% a Tory now. Through and through. Through and through. Although I do know the story. Most most uh, people might. Guess that a, 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 a dynamo conservative like yourself would have perhaps a portrait of uh, Mr. Thatcher or Mr. Churchill in their office. But uh, who is it that you have? That uh, um, Che Guevara, which always I always had him over my uh, left shoulder for visitors, and they always used to kind of you see their eyes going up and thinking, who yeah, I can't possibly be. <laughs> Someone asked me if it was Desi Arnaz. I thought it was. Um, <laughs> to Lucille Ball. But no, the reason I, I did that was to remind me and to remind my uh, officials that without constant vigilance, the cigar-chomping commies would take over. <laughs> I, I'm sure David Bunk was in the room to reply to that, actually. Um, but um, in, in, in that long journey, you eventually ended up, of course, in 2010, doing something most Conservatives would never thought they would have to do, but in a coalition government with, the, of all people, the Liberal Democrats. That's right. Now, um, Something I think perhaps today more than ever, uh, people and our politics seems to be almost wholly determined um, on how we voted in a referendum three years ago. Yeah, I mean the most normal thing would happen after something like that mm. would be the would be the country would come together, and if anything, we're 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 more divided. I mean, I thought working in the coalition, I'm proud to have been part mm. of that coalition. Um, I'm proud to have worked alongside the Liberal Democrats who. I think realise that, like all minority partners in a in a coalition, they would suffer at the polls. Do you think we've lost the ability uh, recently, as a, as, a, as a people, to work with those that we might disagree with on on issues more than we used to? I'm not sure that's right. Um, I mean, you can see 
various members of the Conservative Party working closely with Liberal Democrats and Labour to defeat their own government. But it's not a thing I think I would want to encourage. Quite. Um, and I, I should remind this that we are calling this the In Victoria, um, just over the road at Cardinal Place, uh, a fantastically new de de development site which wouldn't have been there without some of uh, your uh, legislation. What was the proudest? I personally approved it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was the proudest moment do you think in uh, serving secretary for five years? It's uh, my actual prize moment. We did a thing called uh, Triple Families, which was the first centre-right uh, attempt to deal with poverty and to deal with um, difficult families that were causing a disproportionately large amount of um, of, of call upon the um, uh, upon the state. And it was on the basis of tough love. It's on the basis of getting people into jobs. It's about dealing with. Uh, uh, the kind of the whole, the family as a whole, not just one or two individuals that, had a, that were having a problem. And I'm pleased that it's continued. Um, and since, I should very much stress, since of course you're uh, stepped down being an MP, you do have your weekends back, but that's not to say you haven't remained very active and very um, uh, busy. Of course, because you're the government's anti corruption uh, champion, shone the harsh light of day over malpractice in the local government. Um, indeed, the Queen's speech. We've just had include some of uh, your recommendations from uh, 2016. Um, I think a couple of things on that. First of all, are you surprised? Um, I may imagine you may not be at some of the backlash towards in this country introducing voter uh, ID for voting. It is absurd, and it's particularly absurd coming from the Labour Party, because it was largely Labour's vulnerability uh, that got my interest in trying to do something about it. And um, it's a bit like saying, you know, you're requiring people to show some ID, uh, that this is suppressing voting. It's a bit like saying the post office is suppressing parcels because they demand to see uh, uh, some ID. I think um, they've got um, uh, a bee into their bonnet that this is something like the good in the state to repress it's not mm. it's about giving confidence to the system now the electoral commission and foreign observers have warned us for such a long time that our electoral system is vulnerable and it's this to misquote um uh, john major we are really sort of old maids cycling to even song and one war band yeah it's such a basic thing. It's an important thing. And it was kind of interesting uh, in some of the trials. Um, they did um, a focus group with a bunch of uh, young uh, Asian girls. And they said they thought the process of a photo ID would actually give them a greater confidence in the fairness of the system. I met an all kinds of uh, recommendations to stop uh, postal fraud harvesting, uh, to, to, to stop various fraud taking place, to stop um, intimidation at counts, to stop intimidation outside polling stations. And I, I think you referenced it earlier, the, the, the Westminster bubble, a lot of the, the places where this occurs and the places where this does go on are places where perhaps uh, many members, many people in the press don't usually go to. No, they, no, don't. Uh, uh, we saw uh, a YouGov poll that said the overwhelming majority, well in the 60%, thought these, uh, this idea was sensible. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I, I imagine you're quite proud that that recommendation is uh, in the speech. Yes, I mean, I'm a bit frustrated they didn't do it sooner, but it's, nevertheless, I'm very happy that it, they, they are doing it. It's as if the government's time has been taken up by something else and we've not focused on anything yeah, domestic. Absolutely. But with a man, though, with his roots in uh, local government, uh, do you think, and, and how much you've worked with, this, with that report, especially looking at them carefully, how would you rate our current state of local municipal politics? Local government's very good. I mean, local government, don't get me wrong, it's, uh, it's by and large corruption free and it, do, it does a remarkably good job. And it was, in truth, my worries about local government and that these measures were brought in. I don't believe the fraud is big enough to be able to take a parliamentary seat, but it is big enough to take a council. And if you are negligent, uncaring about the probity of the poll, 
you're likely to be equally negligent about the awarding of contracts uh, 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 to your friends. Uh, so it's, it's all part of that. But look, government is, is a very enduring part of our constitution. I got a bit stick because we had to take some money from them, but by and large, they survive very well. Excellent. Now, uh, beyond um, obviously uh, that work, you also, of course, the uh, British envoy for uh, post-Holocaust issues. Yeah, sure. I think very dear to your heart. Um, I know you've done some fantastic uh, work recently, including with the uh, former Shadow Chancellor from the Review, uh, Ed Balls. Um, would you mind, uh, if you could just let the listeners know what projects you are working on with that and, and really the importance that has to so many communities around well, I used to be very unpleasant about Ed Ball, and he used to be very unpleasant about me. But I found working with him uh, remarkably easy, and we've not had a, a single row in two years. And by now, we're beginning to be able to, re to finish each other's sentences. We're building a, a memorial to the Holocaust uh, next to Parliament uh, with a learning centre below it. And the reason why the Prime Minister chose that site is that um, it was David Cameron, and he wanted to ensure that when people left the memorial, they would look and see Parliament and recognize that he was the last bastion against tyranny. But more important, to remind people who work in Parliament that, that the legislature has a choice. It can either protect its citizens or it can oppress its citizens. And we do know that um, uh, that it was a compliant legislature that brought in the Nuremberg uh, laws. And at a time when there are parts of Europe that are seeking to rewrite their history and seeking to see themselves as only the victims of the Nazis, I'm determined that we should tell the truth in an unblinking uh, way. Um, we are, I suppose, at a critical crossroads when the last survivor is likely mm -hmm. to uh, not be no longer with us within the next decade and a half. And at that point, we do know that um, uh, history starts to be reassessed. I think it was Simon Sharma that, that talked about this. And he was referring to the French Revolution. And of course, most of the books written in the 1850s are the ones that have uh, shaped um, our view of the French Revolution. But the difference is this, that uh, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, Edgar, mm. uh, grabbed hold of his Lee Enfield and walked out of a trench in the Somme and walked towards um, the Germans. And within a few minutes, uh, most of the people who bring being brought up with, most of his friends were dead. Nobody doubts that he did that. But there's a whole industry out there that doubts that the Holocaust took place. So that's why it's important that we help frame that narrative. And uh, any reference as well, it's, it's, it's so important, especially at this, this time, this time of history, so many years afterwards, that uh, people, young people in schools get the correct education about it. How do we compare as a country in doing that? compared to some of our European friends? We, um, I think, compare remarkably well, uh, and particularly because we've got a mixture of things. Uh, we, ins we ensure through the lessons of Auschwitz that two pupils from every secondary school go to Auschwitz each year, uh, that they have a preliminary meeting, uh, a visit and a, a wrap-up. We ensure that um, Holocaust Day um, uh, is remembered in January, and I can remember starting that, uh, or I'm not starting it, but being part uh, of a foot soldier of people that put it together. And you know, it was like one man and a dog, but now it's quite a, a massive, it's, it's a massive um, event. So I think we are quite good at remembering that. I think where we perhaps do need to have a wider understanding is beyond the death counts. And we need to kind of understand uh, the Anstatt group, which was the roving murder squads, um, how um, important they were. You were more likely to have been shot in a ditch than to end up in a, in a death camp. Um, and uh, they, the interland of that is Lithuania, where I was uh, 
last week uh, talking to colleagues and through through Belarus and the Ukraine and it's really important that we ensure that we we register where those death sites are and I think uh, certainly uh, and I'm going to sit down next to speak which hopefully won't be too uh, long away it's and I think we'd be very happy to, to keep updates on how that, how that project is going because it's so important and people do need to be aware of it um, looking to the future though um, I imagine it could be actually very uh, content and happy. Former Prime Minister, friend and colleague David Cameron just released his book, and you came you know, quite unscathed from it. I can't believe it was very nice about yes. it. Um, I even bought the audio version because he was reading it, and he obviously, you know, but there was a fair bit of affection, and, and, yes. and I'm rather glad they left out one or two of the other embarrassing things. <laughs> Maybe another time. Yeah. Um, but um, it's um, important, I think. Uh, and I'm conscious of the time, so, but I'm, I think it's important that today people have become so perhaps um, caught up in what's happening in this country regarding Brexit. Um, looking to the future, how would you, and what would you say that it's a positive thing that, that this country has to look forward to? Well, we're a large trade. We're a large trading nation. We're a large uh, economy. We're a liberal uh, uh, democracy, and it will be good to get through uh, Brexit over the coming years. And it will be good to start to look at some of the social issues uh, that we need to tackle. Those have been left behind uh, by our economic uh, uh, progress, and it will be good to see some solid investment in this country, both in terms of its infrastructure, but also in, in terms of the way it operates as a democracy. And I know that's going to be a huge focus of the next review. Uh, because thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As always, it's been a pleasure interviewing and learning from our guests. I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, let's raise a glass to Raising Standards. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.